Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio this week... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And... Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And we are joined by Representative... Jill Shoup from the 88th State House District. Uh, Democrat. And uh, before we get off to the show, we should say we're in pledge drive mode at St. Louis Public Radio, so things are kind of crazy around here, so... If we have to switch around, switch studios, just keep that in mind. Yes, it's it's going to be our patented studio switch that was mentioned <laughs> by the hopefully, RFT. Yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But anything goes during Pledge Drive Week. So, Or on the Politically Speaking Podcast. Or on the Politically Speaking Podcast, exactly. So, Representative, thank you for coming in. You, you serve outside of Ladue. So the 88th District incorporates most of Creve Corps, Olivet, a little bit of Ladue, Frontenac, Town & Country, uh, those areas, even a tiny bit of Chesterfield. And I got into politics. Uh, well, actually, so I'm a mom. And when my kids were in grade school. And I went to college with one of your sons. Actually, yes, you did. Alex. And I'm glad to see that you are both out of college <laughs> and both have good jobs and are working. Congratulations. That's every mother and father's dream. Um, when uh, when my kids were in grade school, there were some things in our school district, and my kids were very lucky. They got to attend a very good school district, but there were some things that needed change. And I served on the parent association, but the real way to make change, I learned, was through the school board. So uh, things that needed change in that district was our class size policy was one that needed to be improved. Uh, we didn't teach provide kids with the opportunity to learn foreign language uh, during their elementary years, and in our very good school district, our schools weren't air-conditioned. And uh, when it was 100 degrees outside, it would be even hotter than that in the kids' classrooms. Kids can't learn. Teachers can't teach in that kind of environment. So I ran for the school board, served for six years, and during that time period, we made changes in all of those policies. We put air conditioning in the schools. We lowered our class size policy. Uh, we provided, started to provide uh, foreign language in the elementary schools. And that was the start, and what I learned from that service was if you're willing to take the time and to learn to collaborate and work together, you can really get things done and put into place good public policy. What, what school district was that? That was the Ladue School District. Okay. And then after that, were you on the Creve Corps City Council I as well? I was, actually, on the Creve Corps City Council, too. So um, I probably would have stayed on the Ladue School Board because I really enjoyed that kind of work. But someone came to me and said she wanted to run for my seat. And I said, you know, I came here. I had six things on my platform I wanted to do. We did them all. Maybe it really is time for me to move on. Uh, and then there was a seat in Creve Corps, and some people said, why don't you serve there? I love the community I live in. I practically grew up in that area uh, for almost all my life. I've lived in that area. And uh, I ran for that district and yeah. served in the city council. So how much have the boundaries changed from when you were elected to now in your district? Because in the, in the state house district? Yes. Well, so none of Olivet was in my district before, and I have practically all of Olivet now. I used to have the unincorporated part of St. Louis County north of Olive um, over to Villa Dorado. I don't know if you're familiar with where that is. My parents actually lived in that part of the unincorporated district. They used to be my constituents. They no longer are. So we lost all of that oh, area. Does that make you sad? It does make me sad. I lost my mom and dad's vote, and I lost my <laughs> nephew and niece's vote. Well, so. you were unopposed in your last election, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. I was. So. And, but let me just say, I picked up my brother and sister-in-law. Okay, good. So, you know, the whole family <laughs> is living generally in the area. But that was going to be my next question. Although, I think in 2010 and 2012, I don't think you had 
particularly competitive races, but 2008 was a pretty competitive race for that open seat, and yeah. you you faced a, a a pretty credible Republican opponent. Oh, absolutely! I think what his name was Frank Plesha. Frank Plesha. Plesha. Yes. Um, how do what do you think got, got you over the top, and what was your experience running in a state? election as opposed to a municipal or a school board election? Well, it was very, very different. You know, in those school board races and the municipal races, there were friends who got together and we made a plan and we carried it out and we did the best we could watching what went on. And we raised a little bit of money. In the state house district, I went from having to raise ten dollars to $12,000 to having to raise $160,000. So that was a shocker. We actually needed to bring on people that worked in the campaign. But the wonderful thing was uh, we were able to win against a really strong opponent. And he, he Frank Plesha is – actually, I still work with him. Mm-hmm. He's involved in public policy. He's a smart guy. He's a good guy. He worked hard. But we obviously managed to, to I guess, outwork him and bring the constituents in who said, you know, we want good representation in Jefferson City. So in that district that was just barely leaning Democratic, mm-hmm. about – 51% is how people would characterize it. Uh, we won with about 60% of the vote. And, and I think your performance in that race is cited as one of the reasons you're considered a, a strong state Senate candidate. But we'll get to that a little bit later okay, good. in well, the podcast. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but, before, but before we get into politics, we're going to go into your actual job right now, which is in the legislature. During the veto session, you made two very notable speeches on the two big ticket bills. One was the tax cut bill. And the other was the so-called Second Amendment Preservation Act, both of which failed to be over- overridden, as everybody on this Although podcast it was knows. Close. Yeah, it was it was, it was close on the on the Second Amendment bill, um, and it actually did get overridden in the House. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, before we kind of look forward, what kind of prompted you to make those speeches? What was kind of uh, your, your stances on those bills, and why did you decide to be front and center in, in that veto session? Well, as you know, there were a multitude of what I would consider to be egregious pieces of legislation that were passed in this last session. 29 bills were vetoed by our governor. And these two seem to be the most critical ones that we wanted to try hard to sustain a veto. So uh, I had very strong feelings about both. The gun nullification bill, I think, was you know blatantly unconstitutional. It was an extremist bill. It was a bill that, frankly, Frankly, my uh, the, the senator representing my district supported, and I wasn't sure I understood why the people in my district will not stand for all no holds barred when it comes to gun legislation. We want to make sure that there are sensible laws in place. So I believed on behalf of my district, I needed to stand up on that House floor and make sure the case was made about why this was not a good piece of legislation. And I will tell you, with regard to that bill, the day it passed in the Senate, The NRA lobbyist uh, confronted me in the hallway. He came up to me and said, Jill, why did the Senate pass that bill? It's a terrible piece of legislation. The NRA is not supporting it. So this was not a bill that was put forward by the NRA. This was literally a very extremist piece of legislation that nullified federal gun laws, that turned law enforcement into criminals and turned criminals into victims and would have turned the state of Missouri on its head in many ways. Yeah, so, the NRA's uh, silence on that bill, or just lack of comment, was interesting, to say the least, because often when they get involved in gun-related bills, and they're for it, there's no question about correct. where they are. On that bill, there was so much ambiguity about where they stood. You you mentioned that somebody told you that they were against it. Other and, people said that— And, and they said that it won't be used in uh, rubric for grading. So— so that was that important. was kind of an interesting subplot in in that, but it it seems like that that that, that 
type of bill might come back next year in some form. What is kind of your your sense and where that issue goes from here? Well, I think that, you know, every year since I've been in session, there has been some kind of gun legislation. And so I don't think next session will be any different in that regard. But I don't think that anybody's going to go to this extreme um, place that they went to in this last session. I think that the NRA will probably get more directly involved and say, look, if we want to pass gun legislation, they're going to want to pass something reasonable. And and my belief is that the NRA is working to help expand the number of guns out in the state, right? So they'll probably want to come back and lower the age that people can conceal and carry or allow for open carry, which were pieces of this gun nullification bill that, that they sure. put forward. I'm never surprised to see gun bills. I'm only surprised to see the numbers of people that think that the expansion of guns is important. Think about what happened just this past, in this past couple of weeks in the Capitol. Uh, remember that somebody who was working for the Speaker's office left his gun loaded in one of the bathrooms. In, in the state Capitol, we should I, I'm sorry, said. yes, in yeah. the state Capitol, left his gun loaded in one of the bathrooms. Now, fortunately, it's not a time of year when schools are, tend to be visiting the Capitol. But imagine for a moment what might have happened if a school child had been in that bathroom, had picked up that loaded gun, even if his intent was to turn it in, there could have been a traumatic, horrible, horrific accident. Um, I think that the fact that legislators and people who work in the Capitol can carry guns in is unconscionable in our Capitol, that we walk in and there are no metal detectors, there is no safety. I want to make sure our kids are safe in all of our buildings around the state and particularly in our capital. So moving forward, I think some form of gun legislation will once again uh, try to be moved through do the you, state house. Among the legislators, do you guys know who's caring and who's not? No. We have, you know, um, anecdotal conversations about that, and sometimes people tell us, but I don't know overall. Does it have an impact at all? The reason I'm asking is whether or not it has an impact at all on uh, floor debate or when people are maybe talking or getting pretty excited about a measure, is there any concern at all about safety or somebody flying off the handle? And what, uh, well, what, it's a great question. I haven't personally weapon? experienced that concern, but I will tell you there is one legislator, and I'm not going to name his name, but who had told me that if anything ever happens in that regard on the House floor, he will be there with his gun in hand to defend me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, not a place that we want to have to go. But I haven't felt that, um, I haven't felt insecure in that way. I think what's more likely is that there's some kind of accident like could have occurred with someone leaving his gun in the bathroom. Now, he ended up resigning. Yes. Was that something that you... Uh, the man who left yeah, the, his, the man who his, left his, his gun in the bathroom. Yeah. Well, I think absolutely that was the right thing to do, that he needed to move on, that we can't, we can't uh, take those kinds of things lightly. Now, looking ahead... The, the the other bill is the tax cut bill. We've right. talked about the gun thing. But the tax cut bill, everybody knows that it it's died. And it's coming back. Allegedly, they won't make the flaw with the sales tax portion again, where they had actually put the sales tax on things that didn't have the like sales tax Like prescription drugs for seniors. And uh, college textbooks. College textbooks, right. But they already are talking about coming up with some sort of bill. I talked to the governor about this a few days ago if anybody had contacted him or if there had been any discussions that he'd heard about. From your standpoint, what have you heard about and um, what is your stance going to be at this point? I mean, are Democrats talking about this or galvanized against it or what? what's the climate? Well, I think that, you know, what we know is that 
there were some specific reasons, like you mentioned, about why what made this bill particularly onerous. The textbook, the, the taxes on college textbooks and the taxes on prescription drugs, which would really negatively impact seniors. Uh, but But overall, the bill as a whole was dangerous for the state of Missouri because what it did was send $800 million a year back to corporations with no um, promise or commitment to creating jobs, which is supposed to be the intent of the bill. And what we know is that it's going to dramatically impact things like public education. And we can't afford that. We're not fully uh, funding our foundation formula for public education right now. Why do we think it's a good idea to send tax dollars back to corporations? And I'd like to talk for a minute. Remember those commercials that were running, uh, paid for by Rex Sinkefeld? Two and a half million. Two and a half million dollars throughout the state of commercials that, to me, gave the implication to people that they were going to get money back in their pockets uh, to be able to spend in ways they wanted to. Well, I went through a lot of trouble, let me tell you, to try to get information about how it would have impact a family making $40,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $70,000 a year, that $70,000 a year, two-parent family of four would get back about 19 bucks a year. That is not a bill that supports families being able to spend monies in ways they want. This was all about refunding money to corporations who are already here. You can't force a corporation to expand if it doesn't have a need to expand. The way we bring business to Missouri is to rebuild our infrastructure, to educate our kids, to provide an educated workforce, and to move forward in that regard, not by giving away $800 million Now, a year. are the Democrats going to have like an alternative proposal about taxes or about, you know, any sort of economic development? Like, what are kind of your ideas as kind of a, a counterbalance to th- this Republican proposal? Right. Well, I don't know that we're going to have a tax giveaway to corporations. I think what we know is that when we create good-paying jobs in the state of Missouri, and whether they are green energy jobs or rebuilding our infrastructure, you know, our infrastructure, building our infrastructure is really important. It, it's job growth, right? We have people working on things that we consider to be infrastructure like roads and bridges mm-hmm. that's much needed in the state. But there's also a kind of infrastructure that I describe as the educational institution. Mm-hmm. And we need to rebuild that. We need to focus our attention on making sure that We are supporting the needs of our kids, particularly some of those lower middle class and low income families who live in districts that are underfunded, that are failing, districts where kids are transferring to other districts that are spending so much of their money uh, paying tuition at the receiving districts and transporting their kids. We we have other things that we can do that is more of a long-term look at how we build the economy. So we start to educate our kids now and build this workforce, and help bring in the future, grow the future researchers and scientists of the state of Missouri. And I think what we're doing is developing job creation over the long haul. If I could go on for a minute about that. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. That's one of the benefits of this show. There's there's technically no time limit. I feel really strongly about this. So (laughs) I live in a district where Danforth Plant Science Center is located, and I've been so proud of that place. And right. I, I know a little bit about that, having spent the last month writing about it. But okay, that, that's, a pl- right. that's a plug for my own ego. But continue. <laughs> okay, good. So you know about that place. And i got to tell you, I was on the Planning and Zoning Commission when we approved that uh, site for Danforth. So I feel very much connected to it mm-hmm. on many levels. But what goes on there is this vision that 
we can do research, we can work with scientists, we can develop the right kinds of plants to eventually feed the world. And that's the goal. And what what an amazing and worthy goal that is. So, so how do we work towards that? Well, we build on that biotechnology aspect that we have in the state of Missouri with this wonderful biotechnology corridor in Missouri with the Stowers Institute in Kansas City. We still are in a place, you know, I was saying years ago, that we need to work now to become the biotech leader of the nation. I think we're still in a place where we can do that. And I think we need to invest in those kinds of areas that have a vision for who we can be and where we can go and that tell us how to get there. So we grow those places. We grow scientists. We grow researchers, the people who work as technologists. Um, We have now – I'm going to go on and on about this because I love it. We have now on the campus of the Danforth Science Center – Bridge Park, and we also have a community college there because we have students from the community college who are working in cooperation with people at the Danforth Plant Science Center to to assist the scientists, to to work in technology. Um, Those are the kinds of growth, that's the kind of growth that we develop over time. Sitting on higher education, the one thing I repeatedly hear from the chamber is that we have jobs in Missouri. We just don't have the workforce. If we really want to build the economy in Missouri, we build the workforce. We we help fund education for tomorrow's entrepreneurs. So let's let's segue to another issue that I think is going to be important next year. It's been important, I think, for the last five or six or seven years, and that's Medicaid. This past year, the 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 legislature had an opportunity to expand. Medicaid up to, I guess, 138% of the federal poverty level, which is in line with the Affordable Care Act guidelines about, um, you know, with the match. And the federal government covers the cost for the first three years, and then uh, for most of the subsequent years, it's at least 90%, in some cases a little more. So it didn't happen this year, as as everybody knows. But in this interim, there have been these several committees that have been looking at ways to, quote-unquote, reform Medicaid. And that might be they make changes to the Medicaid system while potentially expanding it for adults, maybe making changes elsewhere. My my perception of this issue is there there might be a, a chance for something like this to, to, to formulate out of the House. Um, but then it's going to run into a brick wall in, in the Senate. In the state Senate, right. Is that a fair assumption from what you what you what you're seeing? Or do you think that there is a possibility that something could get done this year on that issue? Well, I'd like to say I hope there's a possibility. And, you know, let's go back to job creation because talk about job creation. The Medicaid expansion, what we know about providing health care to these 260,000 Missourians who currently are not eligible for health care is that we will be creating 24,000 jobs in the first year alone. Those are the numbers that we have, and that's what we believe. Over the next decade, it will infuse billions of dollars into our state economy. Talk about moving us forward. I mean, this is a way to do it. And whether or not you believe it's the right thing to do for people, and frankly, I absolutely believe it is. I think everybody in our state should have access to medical treatment so that they can take care of themselves, so that they can be productive members of our state and our society, so that they don't need to wait until they're so ill that they go for expensive emergency room treatment. Uh, Even if you don't believe that that's important, and I do believe it is, 
then there are there are dollars and cents that are involved in this expansion. So, Joe, you mentioned the three-year period of time. Well, unless we do something in the next couple of months, which we won't do because we don't go back into session until January, January. unless we do something really soon, we're, we've already lost that first year of 100% payment by the federal government. Yeah. I mean, just so that listeners know, that first year begins in in 2014. So if you do it later, you still don't get those first three years. You get what's left. You get yeah. what's left. So if we do it next year during session, starting in 2015, for the two remaining years, the federal government would kick in 100% of the cost of this expansion, again, allowing 260,000 people to access uh, medical care. Mm-hmm. Your question about um, whether this will happen next session. I think that cooler minds and larger heads need to prevail. Look, we had disparate groups that were supporting this, from insurance companies to the doctors in the hospitals, uh, including social welfare groups. There was not any group that was in opposition to this idea of Medicaid expansion except one, and that was the Republican-led legislature. So... If that's the only opposition, I've got to believe that this is partisan politics, not good public policy. Now, d- now, do you think that the uh, fight that's going on in Washington, uh, you know, the the debt ceiling and the uh, shutdown, but 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 the shutdown was initiated by the Republican opposition to the Affordable Care Act and a last ditch effort to try to uh, defund it, repeal it, change it, do something. Um, do you expect that to have some impact back here in Missouri, in the fight in Missouri? Since, Well, I will certainly say that everybody's talking about that, even here in Missouri, what's going on in Washington, D.C., and how it affects us and, and this shutdown. So um, what I'm hopeful about, and I think what most people are saying is that this is outrageous and it's ridiculous that our legislators in Washington, D.C. have one job, and that's to pay their debts and to, find, and to support a budget. And we're not doing those things. And I think here in Missouri, um, yes, there will be some talk about that, but I don't think it's positive talk to propel uh, the Republican Party forward. I think it's talk that says it's bad. This is a law that has been passed and been upheld by the Supreme Court. It is the law of the land. Let's move forward. And this piece, this Medicaid expansion that is up to the states to move forward on is a critical and important piece whether what's going on at the federal level will impact what's going on at the state level, I don't know. But if it does, I think it will only help the cause of the expansion of Medicaid. Now, this is a question I've been asking all of our guests when we talk about Medicaid. And it's a kind of an inside baseball question, but I do think it's important. What I have always thought, and the reason why I predicate the question about the Senate being difficulty, is that once any bill gets to the Senate from the House, whether it be a reform plan or a straight-up Medicaid expansion, I think it's going to run into trouble with one senator in particular, Rob Schaff from St. Joseph, who's a physician. And one of the reasons I've been saying that is because he has said explicitly on the Senate floor that if any plan does not include eliminating the certificate of need program, which involves hospital licensing and expansion of medical facilities or price transparency of medical procedures, then it's not even on the table for him. Now, Granted, that's kind of a niche issue for him, but I just kind of see that issue getting entangled in this. Do be, you kind be, because in the state senate, as you know, as for our listeners, they can they, they can, can filibuster. filibuster, and also he's done this before with smaller Medicaid expansions. So instead of 
asking, do I think this is going to happen or not? Because we can't right. control the future. Right. Let's just let me ask you a different question. Sure. Would that be if, if, if a Medicaid bill came and eliminated the certificate of need program or did what Schaaf wanted? Would that be acceptable to Democrats or would that just be too, too kind of off the wall for them to support at this point? You know, I would have to look at, of course, at the specific bill. Um, I think the certificate of need is an important part of what, you know, of the laws that we have in the state. And I think it's important that we don't overexpand so that all of our hospitals end up failing. Yeah, and that's an important issue in your district because you have two very big hospitals in your district. Yes, absolutely. Very important to my district. So I think it would very much depend upon what that modification would be. But right off the bat, I would tell you, I would have to give it a good hard look before I could support something like that. Now, that's always the rub, right? I mean, there are always a couple of things that, you know, you take the good with the bad and which one wins at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hope that Ra- that uh, that Senator Schaff would not continue to go forward and to keep our 200, these 260,000 real people from accessing Medicaid so that he gets his way on this particular um, elimination of the Certificate of Need program. I know he can, and I know he may, uh, but I would hopeful that be hopeful that clearer minds would prevail, and that if they, do, you know, that maybe Senator Schaff, uh, maybe somebody needs to run against Senator Schaff in the in the upcoming. Now election. that's a great. No, <laughs> well, that's a great. Is segment. there any discussion among the House Democrats about what you are or aren't going to do? I don't want to be unfair, but frankly, it seems like in the Missouri House, the Democrats, in part because they're in such a min- min- minority. minority, there's less than sixty of them in a body of 163, um, is that you guys seem to often be observers, not participants. I mean, is there any thought about what what role you'll have, if any? Well, yes, exactly. So, you know, one of the things we have to do is increase our numbers unquestionably. So that district and many others are being looked at hard as districts that we should consider going back and and trying to win. You're talking Schaaf's district? I am. And uh, that is among those that are being considered. So um, I can't tell you where we're going to land or if we have a candidate for that particular district, but uh, better minds than I that that know the the politics and the ins and outs of each of these districts are taking a good hard look at those areas. But still, in policy, next session, what will House Democrats be doing other than watching? Well, I think that you saw that we're up on the floor. We're working hard trying to uh, work in support of our governor's views of some of these issues. And I got to tell you, when there were 29 votes that that uh, were over, uh, sorry, were vetoed by the governor, and only 10 were uh, overridden. Yes, were overridden, overridden. I think the Democrats are doing okay. Uh, 30, 29 bad pieces of legislation that's that at least the governor's office thought was was bad. So I think we are having an impact. And let me tell you, one of, some of the things that go on that the people who are listening don't see. So. Um, one of the things that that I do, and I've been, I feel like I've been successful with, is to work across the aisle with people. And so, some pieces of legislation that I need to move forward that are important for people in my district, you know, I go and I sit down. You know, a lot of the people that come to Jefferson City are are really good people. We may disagree on policy, but there are a lot of good people there, and they're there for good reasons. So I've worked with them, and and they've put, taken my legislation and owned it and moved it forward in the past, and that's why I've been mm-hmm. able to get some things passed. And that's how 
we do some of the things that we do. Yeah, what what she means is, for example, sometimes a Democrat has an idea and a Republican may agree with it. And so they decide to sponsor it. And it just generally in the House has a better chance of passing because it's a Republican-dominated legislature. Because it, right, exactly. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whose name is on that piece of legislation. What matters is if it's good public policy, it needs to move forward. And so I will tell you, I've done that uh, quite a bit and gone to people and gotten some things passed. In this last legislative session, uh, someone came to me and said, I like one of your bills. Can I carry it? So so those kinds of interplay and interchanges are going on all the time. So we may be small in numbers, but we are able to get some things So done. let's let's segue to, I guess, the main political aspect of a politically speaking. The elephant speaking. in the room here. <laughs> not really. Oh, oh. Not well, really. there's no elephant in the there room. There is no that. elephant in the room right That's here, right now. Point. As I kind of alluded to at the <laughs> beginning of, of right. the podcast, you have declared that you're going to run for the state Senate in the 24th state Senate district, which is, I think, takes up parts of eastern, central, and parts of western St. Louis County. If you look on a map, it's kind of a, a right. part yeah, With of redistricting, County. it really became yeah. more of a, it went west more. And it is the race to represent my grandpa and uncle, so I will be oh paying attention. Gosh. Well, I'm going to need to meet those constituents. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and it's currently held by Republican John Lampin. Right. And he was, he was on our show a few weeks ago, and he... He didn't say definitively, but he, he did said, not seem interested in running, running for re-election, for, for re-election. because yes. he and not reasons. not not for nefarious reasons. His daughter is apparently not apparently he, his is. daughter <laughs> is uh, competing in gymnastics right. and they have relocated uh, to, level, to yes. Kansas, Kansas City. I'd say on the on the scale, reasons for if he decides not to run for re-election, that's a pretty good reason. Not I agree. To. But if he does. I think he would be a formidable candidate no matter what. I told that to his, his face. I'm telling that to you. I think pretty much everybody, he's definitely not a shoo-in for re-election, but I think he would be formidable. But let's let's just talk about why you decide to get in this race and what it means for the Democrats. Okay, great. So um, Senator Lamping came in and positioned himself as a moderate in the district. And what we've seen, particularly over the last legislative session, is that He's legislating as an extremist, not as the moderate the district thought that they brought into office. So I think that that's the basic reason that I decided to get into this race. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people in the district, and there is a clamoring for a change. There is clamoring for somebody to go to Jefferson City and provide common sense, to listen to the concerns of the people and act on those concerns, and to to fulfill that position in a way that the constituents of the district can trust. So I am who I say I am. I do what what I say I'll do. Uh, I have a record that goes back to my service on the school board. And people know that I work to get things done. I work in a pragmatic way. And I'm willing to collaborate and work across the aisle. Uh, I don't think that that's what they've seen from the, the seated senator. So that's one of the reasons I'm in the race. And, you know, I agree with you. If his uh, daughter is in Olympic gymnastics, I think it's great that he's putting her needs first. Um, and I know his family's moved to Kansas City. And you Have know, you heard any what... signals either from him or his office about what he's doing? I haven't heard from his office. I've heard it's it's been kind of interesting. Every day I hear something different. So uh, I've heard from people very close to him who are supporting me um, saying he's not running, so I'm going to get involved with your race. You know, Joe, you were at my kickoff. We had 250 people yes, there. And yes, and we need to, to insert about, about that. Yeah, because Attorney General Chris Coster, the, uh, right. yes, we well, the 2012 Democratic 
candidate for governor. 2016. 2016. 2016. I'm sorry. I think Jay would have some exception to that. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm, but I'm, the likely candidate yes, to yes, be the yes. governor. Yeah, I goofed up there. I, my mind was elsewhere. That's okay. But um, Coster was at your event. That was one of the first of what have been become a series of events that he's been going to. In fact, I have a story on the site today about another legislator where he's showing up at their event tonight. But the fact that he was there and praising you and all this seemed to send a signal that no other Democrats should be running in your primary. So in other words, it would give you a clear shot. So have you heard, A, of any other Democrats? B, if it's not Lamping, what are you hearing uh, who might do it? Uh, you and I were talking before we went on the air uh, because former State Senator Jane Cunningham, who is now on a fire district board, has indicated she wouldn't mind going back to the state Senate, but she is not looking at I don't think your she can. Seat. She would have had to move by now. You have to have a residency. Right, right, right. But, but yes. I'm just using that as a backdrop that, you know, that, that there's talk about who might or who might exactly. not. So. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of talk out there. I, currently, I know of nobody who is going to run in a primary against me. Of course, I don't have the ability to keep anybody at all from, uh, from doing that. So, you know, that's up in the air until filing closes in March. Uh, on the Republican side, I've heard all kinds of things. They're not consulting me about who they should run. Oh, right, but, uh, but I'm I, I hearing all kinds of things, and um, they've gone through a list of people that, from what I understand, have all said no to that list. So my belief is that John, you know, for whatever reason, is not coming out uh, right now and saying that he's not in the race. But meantime, the Republican Party is looking for someone to run against mm. me, and I don't know who that will be. As you said, you know we've heard of Jane, we've heard about Jane Cunningham, but um, it does it's at least from what she's saying now, she's happy serving on the fire board. Yes, so. and if she does run for the Senate, what she's indicating it would be the district where she sit, resides now, assuming that incumbent does something else. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you know, I would hope that if any of you get word about oh, who my opponent might be, that you would be. We hope. We hope. But right. I want I want to ask another question because I follow state senate races very closely. This is going to sound like an incredibly nerdy thing to say, but they're actually some of my favorite races to watch because, first of all, the people that win these races, whether they being heavily Republican or heavily Democratic or swing races, they matter because of the right. ability for senators to handle legislation, to filibuster, wh whatever. And I've noticed that over the years, there's been kind of two tracks for Democratic challengers. I think one is a track that you're kind of putting forward as a fighter for traditional Democratic issues, you know, what you did on the floor of the House going up against the Republicans. And then I see others, because they're maybe in more conservative districts, they may be more conservative. They try to, you know, have, you know, be for Medicaid expansion, be for labor, but they are more conservative by in nature. Um, do, do you think that maybe the way that you're going is a better way of, of going about a state Senate race? Or does it have to be kind of depending on the district about what type of, of campaign and type of emphasis that you, you go toward. Right. Well, I would hope that the campaign would always be based on what the constituents' uh, needs are. So that, so that at the end of the day, we're serving their needs. Uh, I think in my district, they want somebody who's going to fight for their values, and that's why I'm going forward this way. And so I'm, you know, I'm listening to people. I'm talking to people. We have listening uh, posts set up going forward. Um, I, I can't say what the best campaign is for somebody else. I will tell you that I work, my husband says I work at this 24-7. I'm doing what I love to do, so I am always talking to people, meeting with people, doing what I need to do to represent the constituency well. I, I asked that question because last, last cycle, for example, Scott Sifton, I think, ran 
you know, I wouldn't say I think he was Democrat. kind of he's kind of a you know middle of the roads, but but I, I I wouldn't say that he was running as a conservative Democrat, and he won in a district that has some conservative areas. Well, other Democrats who were I think trying to showcase how conservative they were on issues didn't really succeed. So I've just kind of wondered whether the track that Senator Sifton is running or whether you're running. Maybe the way to go, but it might just be a district by district thing. I, I don't know. Well, That's- I think I think what I've seen, at least from the constituents in my area that I've talked to, is they don't want extremism. They want somebody who is going to be pragmatic, who is going to be willing to work with people on both sides of the aisle. I think we know that the best policies are made in terms of collaboration with people. You know, we get at the the problems with pieces of legislation. We get at the nuances that may make something have unintended consequences. And that's how the people in my district want to see people work, and I think that's true in Scott's district, Now, the firefighters. The firefighters played a key role in why Lamping has the seat to begin with. Uh, because the firefighters are powerful in some of the county uh, legislative districts, and the 24th is among them, because there's a number of uh, y- y- most of the firefighters there are union. Um, have you talked to them? Uh, it, do you have any sense if they're going to be with you this time? I have been in contact with the firefighters. I uh, I think the firefighters will likely be supportive, but we'll see as things go forward. I will tell you that while the firefighters played a key role, and they were out at all the polls because I saw them when, uh, when Barbara's running against Yeah, because they John. were backing Lamping, just so right. people, so they were at people the, know. But, but I will also tell you there were some other unique characteristics of that race. You've got to remember, Barbara only, John only won that race by 126 votes. Remember that Barbara had a primary. Yes. It was a, it was a very strong primary. It was another page. very good uh, representative. So two strong Democratic representatives you know, fighting against each other, spending a lot of time and money and resources. John Lamping, with no record, and was able to really be well-funded, walked in and won that race in a year that was a terrible year for Democrats. We lost, remember, 17 House seats that year Mm -hmm. and three Senate seats. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this was necessarily about any one group supporting John or supporting Barbara. I think this was about a whole lot of factors that contributed to John's win with 126 votes in in that last race. But you're going to be running in an off year, just like 2010. So are you concerned at all about whether or not there might be um, other factors that could influence your race? Since, since it's not a presidential or gubernatorial election year. Right. Well, you know, there are always going to be things that are out of my control. What I'm going to do is make sure that the things that are in my control, like getting out and talking to voters and making our my, my views and known and listening to theirs and making sure that we align on our policies and our vision for what Missouri should be down the road, you know, I'm going to make sure I'm in touch with that. I can only control what I can control. So, Joe brought up Attorney General Coster being at your campaign kickoff event. You know, how how important do you see Coster's support, either financial or otherwise, in this race? Well, I'm thrilled to have uh, Attorney General Coster's support. And I also have uh, Treasurer's Weifel's support and Secretary of State Kander's support. And, frankly, Governor Nixon has said he's going to um, – help host an event for me uh, going forward. Really? So Ooh. Yes. So, he doesn't uh, do that many. That's news, folks. Yes. That's that's big, r- write that down. I'm not going to tell you the date or the place yet. <laughs> but, um, so I'm feeling really good about it. You know, when people at that level get involved with this race, we know it's important and we know it will matter to, to the people of the state, to the people of my district. So it'll, it'll be the ra- It'll be the, the race to watch here. I think so, I think. too. Outside of county exec and 
possibly state order. I mean, that'll be the only statewide. But yeah, but county exec in your race could very well be the two and marquee. the Jeffco race, the battle yes. for Jeffco. Yes, which we'll do another and, time. We'll, yes. And possibly the eighth congressional district primary. Well, yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're already right, just piling right. more work on right. each other. Yeah, we're walks. So I'd tell. like. To, I know. I love that. I love that. I want to sit here when the show is off and just talk to you guys. Okay. Sure. I know what you okay. know. So. Well, we have to cut it off at least for our listeners here. But uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter, J Rosenbaum, and Joe on Twitter at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the representative on Twitter at at Jill Shoop. Ten letters, S C H U P P is the last name. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Thank you. So long.